Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name, as ever, is Barney Hoskins. <laughs> I'm here, as ever, with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. We'll be talking a little later about the great Sam Cooke, also about the week's new audio interview, which features Isabel Campbell talking about her first album with Mark Lanigan. But first, I'm delighted to welcome one of the very best music writers of the last 20 years, Laura Barton. Hello. Thank Hello. you for that. Very nice. <laughs> Lovely to have you. Hi, Laura. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Um, Guardian readers will be more than familiar with Laura's wonderfully personal writing about music. But why don't you tell us how you came to write about music in the first place? I didn't actually write about music for a really long time because I loved it so much. And I um, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> thought it's just a thing you don't touch. You'll spoil it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's certain things like poetry and sushi I don't think you should do yourself. Um, <laughs> music is the same. Um, so I've been at The Guardian since I left university, so from 22. And I think it really took, I maybe did the sort of odd bit, you know, interviewed Johnny Burrell or whatever for G2. And then... A guy called Michael Hamm became editor of the <laughs> film and music section. And Michael and I had this great friendship where we would talk about music quite often by email. And he would, we were in, both at The Guardian but in separate buildings, and he would email me and say, you know, what are your favourite songs to do the washing up to or whatever? And we'd have this chat. And so he, he wanted a column for his new, when he took over the music section, and he asked me to do it and to sort of write about music in a really similar way. And this was sort of, I guess, I guess people were writing about music at the time in quite still quite a sort of snarky post enemy kind of mm-hmm. sharp way. Indeed. And I think he wanted something a bit more intimate. So that was the Hell Hell rock and roll mm-hmm. album. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean what I love about it is that you write about the experience of listening to music rather than like the music itself in in a way. Mm-hmm. It's 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 sort of how it feels in a given place and time to, to Yeah. I mean I'm not as indeed this podcast might reveal, I'm not someone who stores up facts about producers and mm-hmm. dates and things like that that my brain just never works like that on any subject Good. so <laughs> so don't turn to me for any advice on but i do i love music i've been obsessed with music for yeah. my whole life my my parents were my that's i've worked in numerous record stores you know i've done yeah. all that kind of stuff so it just seemed to me that actually that's how most of us really respond to music mm-hmm. it's not through facts and it's not necessarily through release schedules or any of that stuff it's, sure it's those human moments in our lives yeah yeah. Well, the first of the three pieces that we're going to feature mm-hmm. on the homepage this week is a piece about listening to the first Bon Iver album. And it is it is wonderfully personal. And I remember reading that and I remember reading many other of those columns and, and feeling, yeah, this kind of kinship, really. It was unusual. Mm-hmm. You're right about the snarkiness that was sort of prevalent and just the glibness, really. Well, when, it, this, was, when it was good, the snark, and when it is good, the snarkiness is, snark is, is great. electric. Yeah, 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 yeah. There were so many electric pale snark. imitators. I think yeah. we've invented a new band. <laughs> I think I saw that at the Dublin Castle, yeah? Yeah, I think of people like Neil Kulkarni and so on, who can actually be Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny it's such vicious. an art form. yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it rather reminds me of you know, listening to Desert Island Discs, and I hate it when people on Desert Island Discs simply pay what they think are the best records. Mm-hmm. And I love it, even if the music's terrible, when they play stuff which is about where they were at a moment in their, their lives. Absolutely, yeah. Which is how I think we all experience music, mm-hmm. you, you know. This Bon Iver piece is... It's really essentially about doing nothing else other than listening to yeah. Forever, Forever Ago yeah. uh, for like two weeks. And you a start minimum, off... I've probably listened to that album every day, yeah. at least once for 
the best part of two years. Yeah. I mean, yeah it was and you start off saying, if we have spoken in the past couple of weeks, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Essentially, yeah, my mind has been elsewhere, you say. And it's, I mean, I really love that record too. And oh, particularly, yeah. is it the last or penultimate track, Restacks? Yeah. It's something yeah. that I just go back one. to yeah, me too. time and, and time again. Funny, when it started, I liked Skinny Love. Yeah. That's the immediate one. Yes. The brightest one. And then, yeah, I think most people settle into Restax. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And at the risk of embarrassing you, I'm just going to read one paragraph. It is only nine tracks long, a little over 30 minutes, a sapling. Vernon sings in an icy falsetto, the sound of winter sky and bare branches. He sings of his inhospitable surroundings of snow and stone and crows and cold moons, interspersing these images with a few warm memories of blouses and blood and brassieres. I love that. And you wrote many other columns like that. And you've written a lot of kind of travelogue mm. and travelled a lot in, in the States, particularly. Um, well, you have we, this marvellous new book, West of West. Absolutely. With, uh, Mark, why don't you tell us yes, well, it's, it's, about... Uh, uh, did you know the so, so it's basically a series of road trips, isn't it? So, or, um, well, these were one, West. This is West, West Coast. Yes, so I have worked for a long, long time with a photographer called Sarah Lee. Yeah. And Sarah and I started at The Guardian around the same time and went through the mill of doing Vox Pops and fashion shoots and all kinds of mm-hmm. ludicrous assignments together and a few years ago we started a project where we walked the length of single streets in america so we started with sunset boulevard and we've since done been to washington and detroit and miami and new york and this is sort of almost a little taste of that so sarah goes to california a lot her husband used to teach in california and they go a couple of times a year and she loves to surf and that sort of stretch along the coast there where you surf is, mm. is really evocative for her of, of many, many things in her life, but also just to, to watch the people, the pleasure seekers really who come along. Yes. So actually this is slightly different in that we have surfed there together, but she did those photographs separately to me being there. And I mm-hmm. wrote an essay about what the West means in, mm. our, in our sort of psyche. I, I mean, it's, it's a, she's a fabulous photographer. Oh, she's um, If I modestly say photography is something I know something about. <laughs> And I would say she's one of the best photographers working, Mm -hmm. certainly in the British press at at the moment. I loved those road trip ones because I remember she was posting them on Facebook at at various stages. This is quite a few years back now you started. Yeah, the first one ran in what is now 1843 magazine, Intelligent Life. Right. We did did the Sunset one for that as well. No, it's absolutely fabulous. It's taken a long time for you to kind of realise this project, hasn't it? (laughs) I mean, through no fault of our own, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but that book has been ready to go for a couple of years almost. But yes, she's just, what's a rare thing, I think, as a writer, is to find a photographer that you have a a real sympathy Mm -hmm. and a sort of shared eye. Yeah. You know, I know walking down any street what her eye's going to catch and she knows what I'm going (laughs) to do. And it's quite funny because when we do a lot of work together, I'm speaking to people we randomly meet yeah and I think at first or in fact she said she didn't really know what I was doing (laughs) because I don't really if I'm interviewing I like space I like Mm -hmm. to see what people are going to do with the space that Mm -hmm. you give to them what they how they step into that space is one of the most interesting things to me I mean it it relates very directly to where you write about music mm, yeah it's 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 the same sort of process it's the same sort of approach yeah rather than like a series of facts and so on and so forth (laughs) and the same goes for your broadcasting of course Mm, Laura you know I don't think I've heard I'm sure I haven't heard everything you've done on Radio 4 but I've heard a few things and they've always been 
like your writing, you know, personal and gentle. And there's something really lovely about going on the road with you in, in, in a sort of half-hour oh, documentary. Have you uh, any projects like that on the go at the I moment? I mean, my next radio thing is actually this Saturday, but it's it's about illegal abortion in America. It's quite different. Right. <laughs> uh, although it does include America and and. and Feminism, which is obviously a, a, yeah. a big cause for me. And beyond that, I've got a book out in the autumn. Which I wanted to ask you about. Yes, yeah. which is also has a road trip in America. Oh, good, yes, well. <laughs> I think people would want their it's money back. If it, yeah, 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 yeah. I should actually, by the way, bring you full circle because one of the acknowledgements in the back of West of West is to Gil Vernon, who is Justin Vernon's father, Justin Vernon of Bonivere. He and I, after I wrote that piece, mm. he got in touch with me to say how touched he was by the piece. And he built the cabin where that album was was recorded and uh, we became friends and I've been to the cabin. In fact, I saw him and Justin in the autumn. They've got a sort of festival over there. So that's been a lovely ongoing relationship. I've interviewed Justin for every album. You have. You've done several pieces on Mm. him and really sort of charted... The, his growth as an artist has yeah. been extraordinary. I mean, to go from that first album to what he's doing now. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he's one of one of the very greatest. Oh, me too, me too. Practitioners yeah. around, I really do. It is nice, and I'm sure you have people like this that you know, artists that you ha- are allowed an insight into their work throughout their whole career. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's really special. Fantastic. Talking of so, the other two pieces concern Daniel Johnston, mm-hmm. whom you interviewed in 2006, who died last year, and a piece about the the, the riot girl movement. Daniel Johnston, briefly, because we never got to talk about no. Daniel Johnston when he died. It just was unfortunately he sort of died on the, Thursday. the wrong day of the week. <laughs> I know, I know. Very contrary, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating piece that asks questions of the way we kind of construct cults around people mm. who, who are you know, clearly, you know, suffering from mental health problems. Yeah. And you ask interesting questions about that. Were you a fan when you went to interview him? Oh, yes, absolutely. You were, yeah, you were, yeah. You were. yeah. And had been since sort of, you know, probably teens. I think when you meet him, or particularly at the point that I met him, those kinds of questions come to the forefront even more. He, you know, he was he didn't look tremendously well mm-hmm. and he didn't act tremendously well. well. <laughs> and he, he took more delight in talking about felt-tip pens than about anything else, you know. And, and I don't know if it's true, but because he would sell his artwork and it was meant to be rumoured that his father bought a lot of his artwork. I don't know if that's true, right. but I can't remember if I touched on that in the piece. And I think it was ahead of a tribute to him at the Barbican yes. for that piece. It's a long time ago now. And I remember almost being uncomfortable at that tribute because you had sort of the great and the good of music of the time covering his songs and when he came on he just looked overwhelmed yeah so i do feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes with that outsider art mm-hmm. cult stuff but i do at the same time absolutely love his music and I, I do you can step into his world and get deeper and deeper and deeper and then sometimes it just becomes too much i have to withdraw entirely i guess there's a great quote in here where you he's talking about his brother 
Uh-huh. I don't know if you remember this, and and how they drive around together listening mm. to music on the car stereo. <laughs> I just have to read this out. This is Daniel talking. He had a Plymouth Duster. And I just love the, the name of that car. <laughs> and we'd be driving somewhere, and I remember we were playing Seals and Crofts, and we were driving real far to go somewhere, and the song was going, we may never pass this way again, and we were just driving and going someplace real far away. It was a lot of fun. Love that. Oh, me too. Back to the sea. American travelogue. Completely. And actually, what's quite funny is, and you were going to be talking about Isabel Campbell later, or that you'll be playing that excerpt. And I was listening to her cover of Tom Petty last Running year. Running Down a Dream. Yeah. yeah. And that opening part of Running Down a Dream, or in fact the chorus, is that same idea. It's, you know, about, about not getting wherever you're going to, but mm. it's about driving and listening to music. And two so of my greatest things. You obviously have a sort of. A fascination with well the American road trip. So mm. How did you arrive at that? Did you, did you read Jack Kerouac when you were very young? Or yeah, good question, Mark. Yeah. yeah, I did, and I have a slightly woolly relationship with the Beats. I mean, I studied mm-hmm. them when I was uni, but I have also made programs and written pieces about the women of the Beat movement, and I mm-hmm. get quite yeah. angry about that the way stuff. they get written out. Or yeah. Out. yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. In fact, I went to a sort of festival in Marrakesh last spring and Mm. it's the Beat Hotel Festival which I think is a a good thing but there were maybe just a handful of women on the bill and in the talks they were all about the male beats and there were green room pictures that were just I think it was some like 60 pictures of men and five of women I mean Carolyn Cassidy and people like Uh, that you know who who are essential to Joyce Johnson yes yeah yes it is interesting because I think for a lot of us in a way when we're young there's something about the open American road which is inherently fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and there's a sort of romance to it. I mean, for me, getting books like Robert Frank's The Americans mm-hmm. and things, things like that, mm. sort of... Of course, uh, Avdon's in the American West. Yeah, 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 yeah. And being British and this little island and this, particularly yeah. mm-hmm. in, in my case, London, and, you sure. know, it, it's... It, it's just this whole kind of different leap into sort of... When I was 18, I did a greyhound trip across Canada. Right. My uncle worked for greyhounds, so I got free passes. <laughs> and, um, wow, that, that's the answer. Yeah. My uncle worked for greyhounds. <laughs> but I think literally, we... it was just sort of, you know, seeing a map and seeing a place called Medicine Hat or whatever, yes. you know, and you're like, I'm going to Medicine Hat because why would you not go to Medicine yes. Hat? Yeah. But I made a programme for Radio 4 Extra last year, which is about, it was a, road, a North American road trip, mm. and I wrote about time sort of saying that it was feeling that country move and mm-hmm. I couldn't go to sleep because I was just sort of amazed by this space yes and lights you know sort of telegraph poles and whatever and and listening to what would have been a Walkman at the time and just I just didn't want I just didn't mm. want to miss anything mm. I mean I, I for a long time you know you get very long roads it's mm-hmm. in cities you get very long roads and they have this numbering system, house numbering system, which I didn't understand for a long time. So I, re- I thought this really is 11,154 Pacific Coast Highway, when in fact 
the first two digits, maybe I'll just be the block number. Mm-hmm. It, it, I only just learned about that from Chicago about four years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's how they do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, up to that point, I thought, you, you can't have a house number which is 11,174. <laughs> <laughs> but also the idea of enormity in America in our yeah. tiny British minds. Yeah. Like, well, maybe they can. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, right. exactly. exactly. It's, it's that idea that, you know, you can you can jump into a car in sort of Vermont mm. and just drive non-stop for sort of four days. I mean, yeah, yeah. you could probably get from Land's End to John O'Groats in a day and a half if you really gummed <laughs> it. But yeah. so there is something so intoxicating. And, and then there's all this music about that. I mean, going back to things like me and Bobby McGee and songs like that, which, which and there's so much, I mean, I have to confess I'm something of a, early Grateful Dead heads. Mm-hmm. You know, by early, I mean ending in 1972, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but, but they would write all these songs which were all about this, the, the space and the road. Country music has that mm-hmm. kind of... Six days on six the road. Six days on the road, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 certainly in my musical life, the American road has just always been there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and one, one of the pieces that people most often want to talk to me about, I don't know if it's on the site, is one where I recreated all the different permutations of Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond. I went to Massachusetts and did... I think it know. isn't on the site. Okay, sorry. We'll rectify sorry that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that to me is a summation of just right. like mm. being in touch with the modern world through driving with music on, yeah. Yeah. driving through suburbia yeah. sometimes. Uh, and now, of course, it's slightly... There's a slight on turf. Yes, but what America are you driving for? The America of Trump and so mm. on and so forth. And... and not just America, this country as well, the sense that here we are in London feeling fairly kind of cosy in our sort of Mm. our our metropolitan bubble. And I find when I leave London, I feel like I'm in a foreign country. I don't live in London anymore. And and it is like living in a foreign country. (laughs) 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 I live in sort of Brexit land of coast. Well, I mean, I suppose the question occurs to me is in the last, you know, three years, has your experience of America been any different since Trump got in and everything changed there? Do you, do you, do you, do you experience it differently? Are people yeah. changed? I felt it almost immediately when I feel that customs officers are nicer to you. Do you remember when it used to be you would go to New York yeah. or wherever and they would be a little bit like, why oh, do you yeah. want to come into our Well, so now country? Trump's and they're nicer. Well, I don't know if I'm imagining it's this. It's counterintuitive, yeah. isn't it, in a way? I know. No, I think they seemed almost apologetic. The right. I, I travelled over just after it had happened. It had happened like it's the, the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but I kind of sense—I kind of sense that it would happen that way. I remember I was in Florida shortly before the election, and or earlier that year, and meeting an African American man in like Key Largo or something, who was saying he was going to vote for Trump. And my friend and I were sort of like, "I really?" He'd voted for Obama every. Is that wise? Term. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Think again, young man. Um, <laughs> but yes, I kind of sense that something was. Yeah. Yeah. If that if you can convince an African American an American voter in the South to vote for you then yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure, yeah. sure, absolutely. Briefly let's touch on because it's, yeah. it's sort of connected in, in, in at least, you know, laterally your piece on on Riot Girl on the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. and the bands that came out of there and where like, you know, that whole notion stands now, you know, feminism in Trump's America. I and mean, this is a great piece looking back on on Bikini Kill and Huggy mm-hmm. Bear and so forth. Well, not, not Huggy Bear, but but everything that came out of Evergreen State College and Olympia. Yeah. Yeah. Again, was that something you were? What was the first you know, experience you had 
of those bands and those fanzines. Probably as a teenager yeah. going to clubs earlier than I should have done and seeing girls in, you know, the northwest of England dressed yeah. in, you know, yeah. the words slut across the, their chest, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff and the sort of baby Did Bikini dogs. Kill come anywhere near the north? Not that no. they, pro- they may have, yeah. they probably did in that tour they did with Huggy Bear, yeah. but I was too young for that probably. But I was aware of their music then and then subsequently spent a much later spent a lot of time going back and forth to Portland, Oregon, and that's somewhere I absolutely love. And I went to the uh, women's rock camp there, and I, so th- all of that is still very live. And then you've got bands like Slater Kinney, mm-hmm. who a big favourite of mine. So I, I still think that once you've made a connection to that, particularly as a teenager mm-hmm. and particularly as a woman, it remains quite strong. I think throughout your life. Absolutely. One of the things I particularly love about this piece wearing my rocks back pages hard is the number of fanzines that get mentioned and the names girl germs girl germs is my favorite if this goes on (laughs) uh there's there's about three or four that you allude to and i love the idea of getting some of that stuff oh god yeah yeah, i mean yeah yeah sarah marcus who's one of the kind of big archivists people yeah she's probably got most of she has i think yeah. yeah yeah anyway that's a great piece Well, we're going to stay in America. We're going to talk about Sam Cooke. Why not? So there's a box set coming out next week, which is all the sort of keen stuff, the pre-RCA stuff. Mm -hmm. So you send me and a lot of other things. I think we all broadly agree that a lot of it's pretty kind of trite and and (laughs) sort of over-arranged and a bit saccharine. Was it Hugo and Luigi or was... Well, they came in with with RCA. So this this is, is, you know, lovable and wonderful and only... Pretty sappy stuff. Mm. See, that's me naming producers. I can tell you that like, what was lovable? 56, probably. 56? That's... See? <laughs> did have a fact, everybody. Let, You're as geeky as us. remember my um, one fact. Of the... uh, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I think it, it, there is that cliche that Sam Cooke probably could have could have sung the phone book and mm-hmm. you'd, you'd, you'd listen to him mm-hmm. singing. It is such a perfect voice. Yeah. I mean, we were listening to the Solstairers in the office yesterday, and there's that Sam Cooke, who does translate fairly readily into the, the stuff he did immediately after this early pop stuff. Mm-hmm. And then a process of knocking the edges sort of off him took place by his producers, arrangers, and so on. Then there's that marvellous Live at Harlem Square. That's my favourite, yeah. And you listen to that, and you can see exactly why Bobby Womack was such well aside from marrying his widow yeah and having an affair with his daughter and right? having is that right <laughs> and his brother married his, his daughter, yes. daughter so his I daughter uh, anyway his, his, his father-in-law was his anyway yeah. brother-in-law but you listen to the album and you hear what Bobby Wilmer heard in a way that you don't hear when you hear the sort of the out and out pop end of Sam Cooke's yeah. Oh, yeah. stuff yeah I mean in some ways it was Sam's misfortune to be to just sort of predate the soul era. You know, he kind of yep. gave birth to mm. it. Not just him, but I would say primarily well, him and Ray Charles. Yeah, you know? I mean, there's that box set that Peter Alnick wrote mm. the the booklet for called "The Man Who Invented Soul," and maybe that's an oversimplification. But he was a key figure yep. in that in that sort of transition mm. from gospel to soul. He gospelized rhythm and blues. Mm. Unfortunately. The idea at that point, early 60s, and that was the era we were in, 
everyone thought you had to get the white market. You know, mm. Sam has to yes. play the Copacabana. Yeah. And the, the, the flip side of that yeah. is Sam going, do you know what? I I want to play this funky club in Florida, yeah. Harlem Square and that, Club. That's why and they didn't release it, right? For Till the 80s, right? Uh, correct. Uh, I mean, was, we were talking about Reese Franklin's Amazing Grace movie mm-hmm. um, three weeks ago. Yes. Before, before Christmas. Yes. And she was the case where, yes, it probably wasn't easy becoming a secular singer when she's straight out of gospel, but having a powerful father who was a superstar preacher, allowing her to do it kind of gave her sort of a, a degree of carte blanche to go ahead and do that. Sam Cook was vilified by the gospel community when he, he went secular. He recorded under a different name. Dale he? Cook. Dale as, Cook. If, <laughs> as if no one would realise. <laughs> Dale, Co- Dale Cook. So, I mean, in that, in that respect, he absolutely was a pioneer of people leaving leaving the gospel church, and he mm. was a gospel superstar. We kind of slightly forget that. Solsters were what the probably the biggest gospel act of that, that, that time. The, certainly the, the, the biggest male quartet. Yes. They yeah. had a big and teenage girl audience. Yes. There was a lot of that. <laughs> a lot well, of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pre, pre, so, so R.H. Harris was not Sam Cooke. I mean, he was pretty kind of strict mm. in terms of religion. But a lot of those male quartets had, let's just say, kind of frenzied female followings. <laughs> they, were, they really were like knickers. But, mm. I mean, it, it wasn't very religious. And Sam was the first kind of, I suppose, like teen idol in, in, in that era. And yeah. just drove girls yeah. absolutely wild. I mean, interestingly, he also towards the end of his life, was in the process of setting up a sort of degree of independence within the business for himself, along with another man whose name entirely escaped. J.W. Alexander, yeah, they who set, had been a gospel singer himself. Yeah, and they set up their own publishing company, mm. were in the process of setting up a record company. Star Records. Uh, was, which yeah. um, weren't the Womax brothers, the Valentinos, weren't they released on Star? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, a very early attempt at the sort of independence... By a black artist. He, didn't he also have some very canny business move where he got shares instead of advance, so he didn't have to pay a massive tax bill? Ah. Was that, for, that might have been something to do with Alan Klein. That sounds like an sounds Alan like Klein, Klein move. move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, Alan Klein's company, Abco, still mm. puts out a lot of Sam Cooke yeah. stuff and this, I think this keen box okay. that is coming out through Abco. I mean, you know, we've actually put together a playlist on Spotify. There's a, there's enough great stuff there. Yeah. Everything from You Send Me to A Change is going to come. And there are, there are wonderfully, like, bluesy performances. It's not all Hugo and Luigi strings. <laughs> I mean, Jerry Wax, I called him, the, he, I think he said to me, he said he, uh, he was the best singer who ever lived, bar none. And, you know, even though Sam kind of does the same thing, more or less, in most of his, yeah. you know, with with the whoa, whoa, whoa that that trademark yeah. thing that he did, whoa, whoa. that pops up on most of his recordings. Yeah. But but I mean, it's always great. It yes. always almost makes me laugh every time I hear him, and I haven't heard him for a long time. I was listening to him earlier today, yeah. and I just because his voice is so delightful yeah. and so perfect, and I like it best when it it has that rougher Harlem yes. Square Club counter. Balance. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, just... The delicious. first of the, of the... So we've got three pieces about Sam. One is just an, a record mirror account of of his death. 
which, as most listeners will, will know, was pretty shocking yeah. and, and pretty unsavoury, even if we don't really know what happened. The first piece is, is Lenny Kay writing about 10 years ago. Just It's just a kind of uh, an attempt to explain how great Sam Cooke was and just I'll, I'll read out this short paragraph he had a cooler more laid-back feel than many of the gospel shouters at the time his voice sliding in liquid ease as it maneuvered along the higher registers it set not only him but the stirrers as a whole apart from the ecstatic frenzy that was the gospel caravan in the early 50s and I mean he, he was a different kind of yeah. gospel I mean I would say that his greatest Work is with the stolsters. Mm-hmm. Is with the stolsters. The stolsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you, you never heard the stolsters. No. <laughs> we haven't got time um, to talk I, he, about that. He, he was a huge influence on people like Benny King, who hmm. followed him, who were, you know, in a very similar mould. Sweet and again guys who came out of gospel groups but singing a slightly sweeter way which is yeah. in a way and I mean a huge influence on like Rod Stewart. I mean oh, Rod okay. Stewart was just yeah. an absolute flat out disciple did that version of Twisting the Night Away yeah. on Never a Dull Moment. Oh, I mean, Rusty was equally influenced by Bobby Womack, who was hugely influenced by Sam Cooke, so it sort of goes round and round. Yeah, yeah. And, and Johnny Taylor was another yeah. disciple. But, I mean, he he really did mm-hmm. create a new kind of style. And it's that blend of, as someone said, like that blend of honey and sand. Yeah, I, I suspect mm-hmm. that Marvin Gaye was a huge Yes, he was. Um, he was too. I mean, know. definitely. I think. I mean, he he was the template really for that kind of, you know, this sort of guy in the sort of the, the cool Italian clothes and the Ferrari. <laughs> and all. I mean, he just was super cool. The cocaine habit. You know, but then, but then the flip side of that is that even even before Dale Cook became Sam Cook, he already had two illegitimate children mm. at that point. You know, man, and a lot of this, this yeah. stuff was sort of going on mm-hmm. undercover, really, and people didn't know about it. So anyway. That's Sam Cooke. There's tons more Sam Cooke stuff on RBP. Darling, you send me. I know you send me. Darling, you send me. Honest you do, honest you do, honest you do. That's everything that's free. Well, on RBP. So we'll 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 talk about what isn't. Free. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about the audio first. Isabel Campbell. Andy Gill interviewing her in 2005. It's a short, it's 14 minutes, absolutely talking about, well, we can listen to a clip now about how she first heard Mark Lanigan, how she's introduced to him as a singer. My boyfriend at the time was like, you know, he was like, you should listen to this guy. And he played me um, at Mark's... um, one of Mark's records and uh-huh. and uh, I thought the voice was beautiful and, and then I kind of spoke to uh, the, the woman that was doing my press at the time who's a good friend and she was like, oh yeah, I love Mark Lanigan's voice and so she kind of sent some stuff to um, him yeah. and then he phoned me up. Right. It's a sort of sepia baritone type of thing, isn't it? His voice is... It's, uh, it's very good for uh, bluesy type of things. Yes, um kind of warm yet gruff yeah, yeah. sort of a bit of rough <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a diamond in the rough a diamond in the rough that's it yeah. I love that a bit of rough. <laughs> a bit of rough. <laughs> 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 I don't know what Andy was 
got tried. <laughs> I mean, and she talks about the process of doing it because, of course, he recorded everything, his vocals in Los Angeles, she mm-hmm. recorded over here. About the writing, you know, play a clip later on. She talks about whistling. About, I think it's the Hank Williams cover that she, mm-hmm. she whistles on on that album, and no one knew it was her. She says, "In she says, I like a whistle. I'm a good whistler." You know, she talks about how they were sort of slightly trying to channel Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, uh, but also about the kind of an overall kind of melancholia about the record. I said it's a short interview. She's she's charming. You know, yeah, it's a phone, lovely, as lovely, you can yeah. hear, it's a phone interview. Um, and you've done a lot of phone interviews. They're very different from talking to someone face to face, aren't they? But but she kind of gets a, gets across that bridge of being at the other end of the line. Yeah, and, and I don't know about you, Laura, but sometimes I find actually that I can have a more intimate conversation with someone on the phone yeah. than in person. Yeah. Do you do you ever experience that? I prefer in person, really. Yeah, but, I do um, prefer it. But yeah, you can on on the phone. Depends on the age, actually. Yeah because older musicians are more used to being on the phone. I mean, yes. you know, I think it's... Yes. I don't like doing sort of video call interviews. I find that... Well, Skype sort of Skype Yeah, things. that's sort yeah. of the worst yeah. of both worlds, isn't it? Yeah. It's awkward for everybody. But interestingly, I interviewed Isabel for that first yes. record with Mark Lanigan. And they, their first... She talked to me about that first phone call and how... Because she actually... She sent him a Man Ray postcard yes. and half a half-written song. And when he called her, he sang the song down the phone. She mentions that oh, in this interview. Okay, yes. yeah. And I just think it's quite nice that they, that's a phone, yeah. a phone courtship as well. She talks about how she loved hearing him singing down mm. the phone. Anyway, it's great. I mean, you know, it's nothing I can say about it because it's stuff that's just pretty much passed me by. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was never a Lanagan fan, certainly not a fan of his previous band, Screaming Trees. You know, I think. Has the word Screaming Trees ever been said with more disdain? <laughs> <laughs> No, but he has talked about other acts with even more disdain. Witheringly. I was a huge Isabel Campbell fan, or yeah. a, a huge Bell and Sebastian fan, I should right. say, particularly. They were one of those bands that changed my life, so I kind oh. of knew her stuff back in those days. Right, right. She's got a new album coming out, which is mm. why we're adding this this week. I'd love to hear an interview with Mark sitting in. That would be fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, what do you actually... I mean, what... Do you think the records, the three albums and some EPs that they made together, do you, do you think that they're really great or what? I don't think they're super, super, super great. No. Mm-hmm. I don't I really think. return to them very often, but no. I found I did enjoy that first one. But a lot of that came sort of off the back of her doing the sort of gentle wave stuff. Was, yeah. And have some of her early solo stuff. And when I think she was crying out for a hardness. Yes. It, one of the things about Bell and Sebastian was that there was always a darkness up to the lyrics. Yes. It was a brilliant counterfoil to, to the sweetness. Mm-hmm. And her, I think her early stuff didn't quite have that. Right. So it was it was a relief to hear her with Mark Lanigan, but I don't really listen to them very mm. often. That's not an insult to it. Mm. I liked her listening to this. I mean, mm. I, once a week I digitised an audio interview to post on the site. And you do sort of, just listening to it, you form an opinion of who's been interviewed and who's doing the interviewing as well. Um, yeah, and, and Andy Gill's an interviewer I like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something, And, you know, Sad died you know, yeah. not, not too long ago. But he's a very gentle interviewer, but he asks very good questions. But sometimes I'm listening to this and I end up actually hating the person that yeah, they're of being interviewed. Yeah, of course. And in this one, actually, even though it's, not, you know, it's on the phone, I, I found myself really liking oh, her. She's, she's absolutely charming. Yeah, she exactly. laughs very yeah. easily and doesn't seem to take herself too seriously. No, not you know. at all. One of the things I really like about this partnership is that 
Although it's clearly, it is, you can't be disingenuous about it. It's channeling Lee Hazelwood and mm. Nancy Sinatra and other, and even you could sort of say, you know, Roland Howard and Lydia Lunch. Mm. That sort of gothic Americana, if you like. What's interesting is the sort of slight role reversal, really. That, that Mark is the sort of, is the Nancy Sinatra. Yes. In yeah, yeah. I like that. And I'd love you to say that to his face. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, look, I'm not going to say it to Mark Lanning in his face. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love his voice. I have to say, to me, he's kind of like, when I listen to Mark Lanning, I think, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if Nick Cave could actually have sung? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. because you know, really. I, love, I love Nick and so forth, but, you know, the fact is, he's not a singer. No. And in some ways, I suppose you could say, you know, Mark is almost like, it's almost like Sprechtsung. He's almost, it's somewhere between just intoning in a kind of Johnny Cash, mm -hmm. you know, deep, gravelly baritone and actually singing. There's one song I listened to last night, I was listening to earlier stuff, on one of the Mark and Isabella, where he sings actually in a kind of higher, mm. sort of high baritone, actually how you he probably would naturally sing. Yeah. I mean, I do think this is a little bit of an affect. But, oh, God, yeah, yeah. But I love the... I do actually really like the relationship between the mm. voices. I mean, he tends to be louder. She's almost... I mean, this is these are her songs, mm -hmm. and yet you're really... He's right in the foreground, and she's kind of somewhere around him. I mean... Yeah. There's a great track on, is it Sunday at Devil Dirt, called Backburner that I really like. But there's that. few where I sort of think, hang on, it's it's all a little bit studied. I totally agree. And I I feel the same about, say, she and him. You know, any of those sort of studied things. I, I can like them and get on board for a bit. And then yeah. I just get a bit, I don't know, irritated, a bit itchy. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. intellectually interesting, but mm -hmm. are they emotionally really compelling at the end? Whereas, of the you day? know, she and him, I love M. Ward's solo stuff. It doesn't quite carry into no. the partnership, although that is fun. <laughs> so, yeah. I loved Mark Lanigan just for, I mean, way before he met Isabel. Mm -hmm. He did an album where he does some Bobby Bland's I'll mm -hmm. Take Care of You on it. And yeah. I just thought, wow, anyone who can, who mm. knows that song and yeah, is prepared yeah. to, to have a go at covering it, you yeah. know, he gets my respect. You know, I do. I think he's a really fascinating guy. Absolutely. So there we go. Her album is out in, in early February. And, and, and also it's worth mentioning because Lee Braxton at White Rabbit Books just gave me a copy of this last week, week is Lanigan's memoir, yep. which you know about. Laura. Yes. Sing I, Backwards yeah. and Weep comes out in April as the first title to be published under the White Rabbit imprint. This is this is going to be a new music book imprint. And I've heard very good things about it. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a wild ride and a torrid tale. I think if anyone knows anything <laughs> about Lanigan. I mean that's just that story, the Pacific Northwest, the whole mm. I mean he comes out of that grunge period and how he survived it, you know, and serious drug addiction. Jeez, yeah. So many didn't survive it. He was in prison as well, wasn't he? Is oh, right? I mean yeah. he's he's yeah, he's he's been there, done it, and bought the T-shirt. Mm. And and yes, he still walks among us. You say he's like six foot five. I and, think he's six five, yeah. six four, six five, which is why I did like the idea of you talking back to him. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it by Skype. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there is a there that is a sort fake. of beauty in the beast element here. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. a lot of people come. You know, I really respect the fact that he responded to her kind of overtures. And, yeah, absolutely. And they worked together. But this that there is that slightly. It's just that interesting kind of male-female mm. 
kind of chemistry thing going on there. She didn't really know his backstory when she approached no. him, did she? No. No, if she had, she probably wouldn't have known. <laughs> well, I mean, she, she implies in this that she had no knowledge of him really whatsoever. In no. The, uh, her she just wants boyfriend. a low voice. Yeah, yeah. Her, her then boyfriend. And they don't get any lower. Played with playlists and stuff. Yeah, she, exactly. She liked the voice. Exactly. Mark, tell yes. us about um, some new... New in the library, yes. Well, first of all, Bobby Hart was the writing team, production team behind The Monkeys. Talking about producing The Monkeys, he says, they're funny, this is Bobby Hart, they're funny constantly, they're on all the time. Just as long as there's anyone around to watch, they're on. So in the studio, it's kind of constant bants, as people can easily say. Yes, it's like all boy bands. Like they're they're bands. just on 24 yes. hours a day <laughs> until, until they hate go hate insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jonathan King interviewed by Roy Carr's Enemy 1971. Uh, Jonathan King. Ooh. Uh, Ooh, um, shudder. And he comes over in this just repellently. He says... Hendricks not only thanked me for what I did for him when he first started, he also wrote me a very nice letter. I just hate being dominated by other people. If they try to dominate me, then they can expect to get crushed like an ant under my foot. Mm. And, and lastly, I'm just getting old, though I still look a sexy young 21-year-old. I'm still very good at sex, and I dare you to print that. Oh, I mean, this, 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 this skin just crawls. And you have pr- you've printed it out I printed on that piece Well, moving kind of, you know, on to Freddie Mercury, interviewed by David Hancock for Record Mirror in 1975. And it's funny how, you know, I'm the, the guy who taught me to drive, my instructor, I was having a lesson when Freddie Mercury died. And, and this, my instructor was kind of a real lad, sort of London beer-drinking lad. And he was kind of mortified about Freddie Mercury. Like, no one seemed to get the gayness, which, well, to us, was just so patently obvious from, from the get-go. And he sort of talks around it in this interview. He says, we presented a kind of image. We weren't putting any labels on it. We said, this is Queen, this is our music, and this is how we present ourselves. The funny thing about Queen is that no one could put their finger on it, and we don't want to give it to them. We say, this is us, <laughs> and it's up to you to interpret it. The campness and flamboyance comes into it. We like to dress up, he confessed. You mm. know, he's kind of talking around the subject of his own sexuality in 1975, but in a very, very coded sort of way. But I was staggered that so many people didn't realise that he was such a screamer. Queen were hiding in plain sight. Yeah, absolutely. It was so overt that people didn't see (laughs) (laughs) What's your line on, on, on Freddie Mercury and Queen? Are you a fan or do you think they're Do you know what? I I used to loathe Queen. (laughs) Having grown up largely in the 80s, yeah. it was just, so it was wallpaper mm. music. And, yeah. and I, I've DJed a lot of weddings and, you know, drunken management consultants coming up to you and asking for, you know, whatever big queen hit. And I'm just like, I do not have any queen. I do not <laughs> have any queen. But I softened a little bit more over the years. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. 1977, this is a riveting kind of report slash interview. John Swenson hanging out with the Beach Boys and specifically Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson's solo album, that had just come out recently, mm. had got very good press, got mm-hmm. very good reviews. And the band are basically falling apart in front of them. And of course, that didn't happen. But 
he reports all of these things. There are airports, one bunch are getting on one plane and the others are getting on another plane. That Dennis Wilson is confront- goes onto one of the planes and says, I'm leaving the band. And this, this entire piece is the, basically the band breaking up in front of John Swenson. Wow. Mm. And Dennis Wilson says, I see the Beach Boys coming to a close. And there's a lot of backstabbing and maliciousness going on. Mm. And it, it is a really interesting read. I absolutely, anyone listening to this who's, who's, who's a member who can access it. Was so piece, toxic, wasn't it? It was deeply toxic. They're managed by one of Mike Love's brothers, another one of Mike Love's Stan, brothers. I think. Yes, and, and another Mike, one of Mike Love's Love. brothers is a bodyguard for Brian Wilson. They've basically separated Brian Wilson off from his brothers. Dennis and Carl are due to be sacked. Both of them are due to be sacked. It's extraordinarily poisonous, mm-hmm. you know. And that poison's never gone away. Mm. Yeah, I mean, basically, Brian was sacked by, recently by Mike Love, effectively, as a beach oh, boy. It, just, it goes on and on and on. I mean, one of the saddest things for me is that Dennis Wilson, you know, never got... To, well, that he died, that he didn't get to make a lot more music. Because, yeah. I don't know about you, Laura, I think Pacific Ocean Blue, it really is one of my oh, favourite records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a sort of... As a musical statement about California and the ocean and the heartache in it, the sort of just... It's so mm. moving about just how he can't kind of keep a relationship together. Mm. I, and yet one of the ironies of it is that I believe the title track, which is actually Pacific Ocean Blues, mm. was co-written by Mike Love. <laughs> you know, and you kind of, nothing really makes sense no, no, in that, this story. That's right. They can't live with each other. They can't, they can't live apart. You know, I mean, the, 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 it, yeah. it is very, very... The whole thing's really peculiar. But Brian, Brian, I think, realised that Dennis had real talent... Mm. When I, mean, I think there are a couple of Dennis songs on the Friends album, and you listen to think, my God, they're they're almost as good as Brian. I mean, melodically, in this, really. It, but in this article, Al Jardine says to Dennis Wilson, "You're useless. You've got no place in this yeah. band. You, you you bring nothing to this." Yeah, you know? he was sort of dismissed as the kind of kind of yeah. jock surfer idiot no, stoner. High Lums Sean O'Hagan tells this marvelous story. He was actually due to produce the Beach Boys at one point and met Brian, who didn't know who he was, and so on and so forth. And then the Beach Boys were playing at the end of a football match, an American football match, in a stadium to an emptying crowd. And Bruce... Bruce Johnson basically kind of grabs hold of Sean and says, like, I'm the guy to talk to, I know everything's going on. And then he meets Al Jardine and he's in the locker room, and I think it's Al Jardine who's saying, oh... Mike Love is such an asshole. You know, he's just, none of us can stand him. At which point a locker opens and Mike Love steps out of the locker where he's been meditating. <laughs> it's just such a fantastic, it's just, hi. <laughs> That is absolutely oh, I, brilliant. I know, it's a great story. I'm going to try that. We yeah. are going to get Sean in on the podcast and I'll go and yeah. get him to recount that at some stage. But <laughs> yeah. it is too funny. I better tally with what you just yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah. Well <laughs> um, moving on to 89, Tom Doyle and Smash Hits interview Millie Vanilli. I remember when this was published. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is hilarious. I mean, there was such a cartoon sort of, you know... Didn't he ask him about what they keep down their leggings? He did. Yeah, I'm yeah. afraid I haven't got that quote here. I wish I'd, I'd got it. But I love this guy. Rob says, 
I can't see this rap stuff staying around now, you know. You know, the gold chains and Adidas, you know. I mean, yeah, you got that right, mate. Yeah, 1989, <laughs> yeah, rap, um, rap was on its last uh, leg. Yeah, I mean, you know, was, <laughs> after they got exposed for not singing their records, another group turned up called The Real... The Real Millie So So we have a piece on the site of, about The Real Millie The guys that actually sang. Yeah, the guys that actually Who sang. Who was it? Was it Black Box? Black Box at the same time? Was yes. Catherine? Yeah, we, yeah, we were talking yeah, about we had about it last week. We oh, regularly talk about <laughs> well, well, fake. My old yeah. singer, Heather Singers. Small, actually was the person who ended up putting on the re-release, putting the vocal on. Oh, did she? Which I didn't know at the time, even though we were still together as a band. That was kept very, very quiet. It was part of the whole sort of schism, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's no, too funny. I'm just a love girl. And this is true. Girl, you know it's girl, Moving on to Rolling Stone in 1993, David Sinclair. It's fantastic. He and David Bowie spend the day going around London, visiting all the places which meant something to, you know, to his various parts of his career. Well, that's a dream commission, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. can, I, can I do that, please? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, and, of course, David Bowie comes over as utterly charming, which he does. Most it times, he, by all accounts, you know. I've got a bunch of quotes here. Says, to this day, I'm really not sure if I was playing Ziggy or if Ziggy was exaggerated aspects of my own personality. Mm. I think I'm vain, but I hope I'm not narcissistic. We all have our own feelings about what we look like. Him marrying a man, he says, I've never been out with a model before, so I hadn't even bargained on the cliche of the rock star and the model as being part of my life. Poor <laughs> um, David. And, and I, he says, I think I was always a closet heterosexual. I didn't, ever feel, I didn't ever feel I was a real bisexual. You know, I don't think he was, no. really. I mean, it's, it was just in the spirit of the time. Yes. You fell yeah. into bed with someone of your own sex. Yeah. Lastly, Lauren Laverne, Knicky, talking to uh, Stephen Wells. I, I will always try and find a Stephen Wells piece Absolutely. to put it's just yeah. always I, by law. Really. I was saying this the other I mean, day that I suspect, contract. I suspect <laughs> that he and I wouldn't have a single record in common in our respective record collections, but I would just, just read him for fun. He really likes Mrs. But Kanicki are also totally head screwed on, decent, humane, caring, tender, warm, loving, nice people. And like all nice people, they want to see the hammer and sickle flying over the House of Commons and the streets of London choked with the fly blown corpses of the Tory dead. <laughs> 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 Which I, 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 I just I just love that. So that's that's that's, that's my love. Do, do you know Lauren Laverne? Have you have you met her? Uh, yes, yeah, her? yeah, yeah. Quite a few times. Yeah, yeah she's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, she's a really yeah. really brilliant thing. No, I, I I think we're all sort of fans of her. Yeah. Mm. She's a fan of us. She Good. made a, said a very nice too. thing about Rock's Back Pages very early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yet neither of us have been invited to do Desert Island. No, Discs. I don't. Your time will come, no I doubt. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do something spectacular in the next five years. Well, um, I'm sure you will. Well, what have you got to her? So I'm just going to mention a few things, as I always say, en passant. Things that I really enjoyed sort of overseeing, as it were. There's a great piece about the Libertines by Ted Kessler from 2003, which just is, it's sort of quite sort of your eyes boggle and you mm. kind of read the stuff that Doherty was up to in mm. every town that they pull into in America you know he immediately disappears mm. and somehow manages to, to to come back for the gig like five minutes before the due on stage with sort of blood all over his shirt and yeah I mean it's how he's still alive god he knows lives next um, town to me I try and avoid him Okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought he still kind of, you know, haunted the streets of Paris or somewhere oh, I'm like sure that. But he he's does. I think okay. He's, 
Sorry, it was clean for a bit, wasn't he? I don't know how many... Ten minutes. About three minutes, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think he could have been a great songwriter and he isn't. And I get really annoyed with yeah. the whole yeah. love of the Libertines, to be honest with you. But uh, that I, is a great piece by Ted. It is a great piece. <laughs> um, there's an interview from two years later with Beck by Sylvie Simmons, which is really good. I mean, Beck, Beck is a great interview. Yeah. We sometimes talk about this in the office... I mean, I interviewed Beck two or three times when when he was, in my view, really great. I since I have to say, since Sea Change, he hasn't done an awful lot yeah. that I think really stands up, and I feel sad to say that. I Do agree. You... I interviewed him more recently than that, and adored him as an interviewee. Mm. Really, really such interesting. an intelligent yeah. man, isn't and he? and in, inquisitive. And I always find that's yeah. a really beautiful thing in someone who's so you know adored by by the industry but Sea Change is still my favourite Sea Change is just extraordinary he always left me really pretty cold Mm. I mean I like what he likes yeah if you Mm. see what I mean I mean the references right through from the earliest records the references to stuff that I've always really liked but it's it's left me cold because it's it's always it feels like it's almost a manufactured process. I am now going to be this artist. I'm now well, going to be that mm. artist. I, I think he would. I don't think he'd disagree yeah. with that. Also, I mean, he's that rare thing. He was born into Scientology. He didn't mm. adopt Scientology. His parents are Scientologists, and he's never yeah. left it. And I was slightly queasy about that. I think we're all mystified by that. He's married mm. to a Scientologist, and when you meet him, you think, "How can someone this bright and, as oh, you yeah. say, inquisitive, you know, be enthralled to this?" Utter nonsense. Yeah. We'll get a lawsuit now. <laughs> um, I did once get a lawsuit from the church. You did? I remember, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I mean, I, I was in the days of fax machines mm. and I came down to my, my office and and this endless spooling <laughs> thing was coming out. With a personality test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, this, yeah. By the way, you might want to just briefly a couple of couple of other pieces. Actually, sorry, can I interrupt you? Yeah. I, I was buttonholed by Van Morrison in Tottenham Court Road. This is great. And yeah. asking to invite me in to have my e-meter read. This yeah. was back in the early 80s, or wow. I guess. And he, yeah, he was a shill for the Scientology. Yeah, he was out there good. standing outside their centre in Tottenham Court Road. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't clock who it was. I sort of said, no thanks, no, nothing to do with me. Walked on. About five minutes later, I thought, fucking hell, that was Van Morrison. And, and it you know. That prompts me to, of course, bring up your recent encounter with Mind George Ivan Morrison. I, I know. You me in a small I room felt and so bad for you. I mean, oh, no. it was actually I laughed about it. I did cry for about three minutes. I went back to my hotel room just along the corridor and cried. Listeners, just in case you don't know, this was an interview that Laura, an interview quote unquote, that <laughs> Laura, Laura did for the Guardian late last year yeah. when his latest album came out, and you had the experience that I think a lot of journalists have had with Van you just yeah it was fixed 16 minutes and you 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 literally said there's just I might as well go now I mean it was it was a very I wanted to interview Van for years he's probably the biggest artist for me ever and I remember when he did a blues album not long before and I'd asked oh no jazz album and I asked every single album for years always turned down. The jazz album came around and management wanted to know how much I knew about jazz. I had to like send through my jazz CV <laughs> and including a picture of a jazz family tree that I have on my kitchen wall, you know, things like that. Yeah. I was just like, what the fuck? Did you ask Mike? Sorry. Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> what the heck? Guest. Did you ask Michael Han how much he knew about blues before he interviewed? For the, you know, of course not. Yeah, yeah. And he very rarely is interviewed by women and I think that was a big part of it. And so I interviewed him that day and he was apparently in a foul mood already and the two managers how sat, unusual I know. <laughs> the two managers sat on the bed 
in this hotel room in Cardiff. I think they were trying to, they were worried that he was in a bad mood, but it just made it worse and it was, it was awful. It was like trying to climb a really slippery slope. It was awful. What's interesting is we've got interviews going right back to the mid-60s and then, mm-hmm. where he's been fantastically unpleasant to interviews oh, God, yeah. back then, you know. I he's mean, nothing if not consistent. <laughs> I remember when I started at NME, I mean, there were two or three journalists like Tony Stewart, Roy mm. Carr, who would just regale people with this, the stories of the nightmare of interviewing Van Morrison. Yeah. I mean, so this is going back to He's that. chased people down the street. I think something from Hot Press, he chased him down the street and yeah. tried to attack him or something. Oh. Another lawsuit. Well, it's a marvellous night for a moon dance With the stars up above in your eyes the last thing I'll mention is a piece about Big Mama Thornton, mm-hmm. Willie May, Big Mama Thornton, which is actually great, great just piece summarising her career by David Burke from Vintage Rock magazine. This is like three years ago. And I mean, I've read stuff about Big Mama and what a f- just fascinating character. Yes. Do, you know, do you know anything about her? A little bit. Extraordinary uh, life. When I was at... Ladies Rock Camp. They gave some lectures on on great female musicians, yeah. and that was. And I already knew her music, but that gave it more historical mm. context. Yeah. yeah. Well, so this this piece is just it's really interesting about you know the provenance of Hound Dog, mm-hmm. also about lesbianism, and how she ended up just doing playing bars in kind of San Francisco. And I think Janice Joplin saw her at some funky little bar in North Beach or something, mm-hmm. and heard her sing Born Chain and. You know, of course, you know, it's the usual story, you know, who made the money out of Hound Dog? <laughs> not not Mama Thornton, no, you know. Okay. I believe that certainly initially she only ever made like five hundred dollars. Okay, mm. five hundred dollars is quite a lot of money back in the back in the fifties, but I don't think she ever made any more money. No, no royalties you know? like So that, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's it's a sad and familiar story. Yeah. Anyways, it, it's a great piece. briefly talk about the absurdity of the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We can. Uh, I, I mean, you know, Americans seem to take it terribly seriously. I don't think anyone in this country gives a flying fuck about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The very idea of it is sort of antithetical to what rock and roll is all about. But this, the list that came out, the, the, the inductees has just come out. It's Doobie Brothers... Depeche Mode, T-Rex, Notorious B.I.G., Nine Inch Nails, Irving Azoff, John Landau, and controversially for some people, Whitney Houston. And on my Facebook feed, particularly American journalists have been saying, why is Whitney Houston in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And some of the responses verge, frankly, on racist. Mm. You know, and this idea that rock and roll is white music mm. with guitars. And, you know... It's, it's what well, someone posted on the, the Roxback Pages Facebook feed. I'll just give this quote is basically the only reason Whitney Houston became mega famous was because, like every other black hoe bitch female singer, she was told to accentuate her tits, thighs, and ass to sell records. Mm. Um, we pro- that's, that's nice. I think how Big Mama Thornton got her 500. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a ludicrous yeah. thing to say. It's just appalling. I mean, you know, I read that quote and I thought, I'm, we're not having this on our Facebook page, so we banned her. I mean, first of all, people take it so seriously. Mm. Why doesn't the cry goes up every year? Why aren't the MC5 in it? Well, I think the MC5 could well deserve to go in it. 
the whole thing is absurd. And people's responses, it brings out the worst in people. Yeah. It really, really does, including me. I should, <laughs> just mean, I should just mention, of course, that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a subscriber to Roxbury Pages. So you may have cost us a couple of thousand dollars there. <laughs> Whoops! Um, uh, but I uh, hope that's the library. But Laura, your response to that kind of, yeah, essentially kind of racist, extremely narrow-minded, rigid attitude to like Whitney Houston being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What, what, what are your thoughts? I hate any rigidity in music. I hate any mm. definition mm-hmm. of this is what this is and you're not allowed over yep. this fence. And it's the absolute, it's absolutely counter not only to music in general, but maybe I'm contradicting myself, but to rock and roll, which yes. to me is huge and expansive yeah. and inclusive and exciting. Mm. And to have people having this white knuckle grip on it mm. in that way. White being the operative word. Yeah, white, <laughs> male, like white knuckles. White knuckles. Now that I come to look at it. Yeah, I think go and sit on your hands and think about yeah. what you've just said. Apart from anything else, the term rock and roll, the phrase rock and roll, came out of African-American music. Exactly. It was, you know, it was prevalent in, in probably the 30s, yeah, yeah. to rock and to roll. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. And and rock and roll, If even if you do see that as some kind of white version of black rhythm and blues, it's still rooted in black rhythm yeah, and blues, yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And the ongoing interchange between black music and white music ever since then. So it's yeah. laughable. I think you've got to knock this thing on the head. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're Before rapping. we really do lose our yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame subscription. <laughs> yeah, but well, look, Laura's been absolutely fantastic. It's been, joy and honor for it's been us. a joy to be in your cupboard. I'm starting to think we should, it should be like the sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the green room, as it were, at mm. CBGB's, and we should yes. get our guests to scrawl something on the wall, like, every, like all the punk bands <laughs> did. <laughs> starting with you, Laura. Um, we, we'll, we'll get you a, a spray can or something. You. But, you know, thank you so much for, for, for coming in. I mean, we absolutely love your writing. Yeah. We wish you all the best with future projects and thank look you. forward to to reading the new book in the autumn. Thank you very much. As they say, come and see us again sometime. I would love to, yes. Um, anytime. And we're going to go out with another clip, which is Isabel Campbell talking about whistling. <laughs> well, they, briefly, the, one of the things I love in listening to that interview is she asks Andy, what are the other examples of whistling on on Because he mentions jealous yeah. guys. And then you like get Dock of the Bay. And, he, and, and neither of them can think of sitting on the, the Dock of the Bay, which surely is the it's most the... famous whistling yeah. pop yeah. song, you know. <laughs> so anyway, take it away, Isabel. And on that note, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Who did the uh, whistling? Me, it's Jim. I know, I played it to my friends in the car the other week, and they were like, oh, listen to him whistling. I was like, that's me. (laughs) That wasn't really supposed to be on either, but but I I was kind of, I'm a bit proud of my whistling, so. There's not enough whistling in uh, in (laughs) Apart from, there's there's a really nice bit of whistling on, uh, was it uh, Jealous Guy? The Lennon track. Yeah, yeah. And and there's, there's a few other... There's a few other uh, notable pieces of whistling, so more whistling. Basically. Yeah, what well, other songs are whistling? I'm trying to think now. There are a few sort of famous ones, eh? but yeah. no, I do. I, I, I like a good whistle. Yeah. <laughs> That 
was Isabel Campbell in conversation with Andy Gill in 2005, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Laura Barton. Find her on Twitter, at Miss Barton. West of West, a photographic exploration of the edge of America, a book of photographs by Sarah Lee, with an introduction by Laura, is published by Unbound and Out Now. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.